Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. Historians, perhaps more than anyone, like to trumpet the importance of objectivity. While that's quite understandable, of course, if your day job is to try to develop a clear-eyed, unbiased sense of the past, then objectivity is obviously key. Of course, it's inconceivable in principle that a work of history could be completely objective, not only because our present worldviews inevitably impact how we look at the world, but because the very choice of which particular topic a historian decides to tackle is invariably a choice of her own inclinations and personal orientations, which are themselves, naturally, subjective. Which is hardly always a negative thing. Take author, poet, and independent scholar Jennifer Michael Hecht, who unhesitatingly admits that she was spurred on to research her book Stay, A History of Suicide and the Philosophies Against It, due to personal traumatic experiences. But that hardly invalidates what she learned. Your past strikes me as quite singular, and maybe I just don't know, but Mm -hmm. the idea that you studied history, you studied philosophy, um, you're a a practicing poet, um, and a successful poet, you're a successful writer, Um, you also do a lot of educational volunteering work, I understand I from your website. Yeah, I give uh, a lot of talks. Um, but you, you regularly go, go into, into high school, into public schools, grade schools and so forth, don't you? Or, or no, not regularly. Up? I've done uh, a couple of those, maybe three, uh, as sort of a poet or artist in the school's uh, role. Um, but right now I am actually teaching uh, in a high school in Queens. Oh, really? Um, yeah, Young Women's Leadership high school, a wonderful place. Um, they don't have a ton of resources. Um, and uh, yeah, I brought them one of my poems today for the first time, and it was a really amazing experience. Very deep. I had two of the classes, and it was deep. They're 14 years old. Wow. So, so this, 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 this integration, at least from my perspective, mm-hmm. of all these different things, uh, I guess two questions. First of all, is that normal in your experience? And secondly, how did that all happen for you in terms of your, um, your formative years and your education right. and how you moved forward? Well, no, it's not common. Uh, every once in a while I'll meet somebody who does nonfiction and poetry and we get all excited about each other because it's pretty rare. <laughs> yeah. um, I decided I wanted to be a poet at a very young age. Certainly I was sure of it in college, but I didn't know about modern poetry almost at all. Um, I was thinking of the romantics. Mm. I uh, started in college learning about modern poetry, and at first it, it was a little hard to take because I was so in love with the romantics and with some other um, more classic poetry. So when you decided to be a poet, you were in, in your mind it was, I want to be a romantic poet, basically. Yeah, Keats. Okay. Keats and Dickinson were, were the people I wanted to talk to. Um, and a lot of others. Um, I, for me, you know, Kublai Khan, Coleridge's Kublai Khan was like, uh, you know, a pop song. I just loved it and I memorized it and I told it to myself all the time. Uh, 
I liked it. I've always found rhyme very delicious. Anyway, uh, so I was going to do that, and I uh, wanted a. My father's a physics professor, and he was home all the time writing, uh, mostly textbooks. Um, but it was clear that you could be a professor and be home all the time writing. And I wanted to be home all the time writing. So uh, the question I still am sort of amazed that my young self decided that I wanted a body of knowledge. Um, I, wanted, I didn't want to study creative writing. Um, I'm not sure how much I understood it existed as such. I really didn't know. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I decided to get my PhD in history with the idea of, you know, so I could be a history professor, so I could go home and write poetry. Oh, so, so this was a tactical, tactical device. Oh, yes. oh, that part, yes. Interesting. That part, yes. So I went to Columbia with the idea, for my PhD, with the idea of studying cultural history. And they said, yeah, yeah, come, come. They gave me a nice offer, and I, they didn't have a cultural historian. They kept saying they were going to hire one, but they never did while I was there. So. I studied with Robert Paxton French history, uh, modern history, um, and he has some cultural stuff in his work, so there was something there. But in the meantime, I, I took a course in the history of science, and I just fell in love with it. It, it was the most like poetry that I'd found in history. There was a way oh, that you were so. feeling around with your, with your gut, almost. Your, you, in the history of science, I, I joke that the philosophy of science is how science works, and the history of science is how science doesn't work. So we're really looking at ways that cultural ideas uh, shape both the questions that are asked and the answers that are accepted. Uh, and how do you know when that's happening? You know, uh, Foucault was doing a sort of classic history of science move when he says the Victorians, who are constantly saying, let's keep sex under wraps, let's not look at it, you know, put a skirt around the piano because it has legs. Um, Foucault says they're obsessed with sex. Talking about not, not having sex is this, almost the same thing as talking about having sex. So yeah. that's a kind of a, it's a kind of a flip, it's a kind of a feeling that you have to go with. Or uh, studying early anthropologists and realizing that some of their metaphors for women are similar to their metaphors for people of color or their metaphors for children. Um, and seeing how each one is uh, supporting a kind of hierarchy. Uh, so again, you're looking for clues, you're feeling around, and um, for me, you're also leaving yourself open to a new conclusion, which I think is true in any study. Oh, one thing I always say is, you. you to write a book, you have an idea. You have something that you know that your friends don't know. Like I always tell people, don't try to be brilliant. Don't try to do a lot. Just say what you know that your friends don't know, but then check every fact. And as you check, most of them will be a little wrong. You'll have remembered the quote a little wrong, or it was in a context you forgot about. And as you fix that, you're going to put things in the exception pile. And after a while, sometimes the exception pile is bigger than the rule pile. And if you're good, and a lot of people won't do it. They'll just keep doing this and explaining away the exception pile. But if you're willing to look at the exception pile and try to explain it, that's how you get to a new idea. Right. Um, so, so, yeah, very much uh, 
history, uh, the history of science appealed to me in a way be, that was more dynamically interpretive than history at large. And when you say history of science, uh, was it all areas of history of science equally? History of biology, no. history of physics, uh, history of no. psychology? Uh, at Columbia, it was mostly the biological sciences. Uh, the courses that were available, uh, what the study was, was mostly about the history of biological sciences. So medicine uh, and anthropology. Uh, I always say that the closer to the body you get, the less uh, stable the scientific ideas are. So cosmology can last a couple centuries. Um, but if you get into social, you might last a century. But when you get to medical advice, that's going to change every couple of decades. Mm. And, and when things change with that rapidity, it, it's only reasonable to realize that they're being culturally uh, moved around. So when you were doing this and you started, uh, I'm guessing, so, so correct me if I'm wrong, but recognizing the value of this, recognizing the interesting way of developing new ideas, as you were saying, if, you're, if you start paying attention yeah. to your pile, you uh, exception, pile, uh, exception yeah. pile, that you, you generate new ideas, was there a sense that you started getting excited and passionate about that line of work yeah. and that line of inquiry just as much as, as poetry, where yeah, it became less now. tactical mm -hmm. and you're starting to think, wow, yes. this is really cool Absolutely. to be doing. Absolutely, yes. I was very much drawn in by, uh, by the, the style of research and then by the stories that I was researching. I, I, I was uh, just enchanted and drawn in. And, um, so my, my dissertation, which became my first book, was a study of a bunch of late 19th century French anthropologists who were dissecting each other's brains after death, uh, ostensibly to show the relationship between brain morphology, weight, mm. shape, and, and, character and characteristics, yeah. traits, abilities. And, but more, uh, I, I came to believe that on a fundamental level, this was a secular version of Catholic last rites, the Catholic last rites that most of them had grown up with so that they did it for 30 years. Uh, what, what inspired them to start was their most, one of their most famous members was Paul Broca. Mm -hmm. And Broca, uh, in the middle of the 19th century, finds the first relationship between an area of the brain and an ability. Uh, it's the first time we know, oh, the brain does, can be mapped. So this isn't any language, right? This is That's right, Broca's aphasia, right. exactly. Right. Uh, so, Broca dissects this guy Tam, who is called Tam because all he can say is Tam, and finds a lesion where he expected it. He already had a sense from other people's research um, that it would be on the third left frontal circumvolution of the brain, which is where he found it, and so it was confirmed. Now, this gets into France in around 1859, people are talking about, 1849. 1859 is when Darwin publishes, and it isn't translated into French until 1871. Really? That long? That long. 12 years. Wow. And when it's translated, it's translated by a woman named Clémence Royer, who's a big atheist. She believes, she sees the Lamarckian stuff in Origin of the Species. She calls that out in a kind of French pride way. But she also... French pride? Never heard of it. Sorry. She's got, <laughs> she's got like a 35-page preface. It's not a preface. It's a work that... My anthropologists who are dissecting each other, though she's part of them at, at some point, um, say the translator has seen farther than the author. Because she says this means atheism is true. Mm. She says this means uh, Darwin, uh, origin, but origin of the species means... Uh, it you know, implies she, atheism. Every part of her 
prefaces about human beings, whereas Darwin says one thing about human beings in the last line, he says, perhaps this shall, shall throw light on the origins of humans. Um, the rest of that is, is finches and dogs and horses. Um, so, uh, but still I'm looking at the dates and saying that these anthropologists decide to be anthropologists because of Broca's aphasia even more than origin species, but both look like a way to prove that there is no God. And they had been meeting as atheists at the Diderot dinner uh, for a while before when Broca did this, he, he was the founder of the Society of Anthropology. Indeed, anthropology didn't really exist. There were a few people who were called anthropologists in the world, one in France and one or two in, in the States, one in, or two in England. But the idea of having a school for it, that's all starts in France at this time by these guys. Mm. Um, and Clémence Ray, she's always there. Um, she had said at one point, it's too bad I can't join, to Broca. And he said, there's no such rule. Come on in. Um, some of his science has a little sexism in it. For instance, he says women's brains are a little smaller than men's, but he's not going to take into account body weight, even though when he compares French to German, he does take into account body weight, because if not, the German brains are all heavier and bigger. So, um, But uh, Léonce Manouvrier, a guy who uh, no one was talking about before I found his work, and it took me a while uh, before I noticed the exception pile had gotten so big, that Manouvrier was... Uh, a profound egalitarian. Um, he really argued against racism and sexism in the, at the end of the 19th century in some ways that are very sophisticated. Right. Yeah. And, and um, the long-term effect that these thinkers actually had on the society, were these, did these ideas actually take root immediately? You have these people who were uh, making these claims and who are meeting and so forth. I mean... You know, church and state are separated in France in 1905. And these guys are pushing hard from, say, 1879, when the French uh, government really becomes Republican. So, you know, it's, it's the Franco-Prussian War when France becomes the Third Republic, mm. but, it's a, but the, but the um, Parliament is, uh, is all, the Chamber of Deputies, is, is all royalists. So they're running things in a very royalist way until 79. 79 is the first time that it's a republic and people who think of themselves as republicans. are actually in power. Right. Because before that, they, it was just the least of all problems because everybody wanted a different guy to be new, the new king or the new... So it, they said they went with the republic because then they would be in charge. Mm. So these guys are radical left-wing people who grow up, uh, my anthropologists, under the third republic and then under this period of sort of a false republic. And then in 79, they kind of bust out and start pulling down crosses from cemeteries, campaigning to have streets changed from Saint-Étienne to Diderot. Right. And they get some of this, and they push against the church ban on cremation and on autopsies. Um, so there's a lot of things that they, in fact, soften in the culture. Um, at one point, in a re one part that I, I can't be too proud of, they, they kick the nuns out of this... Uh, this public building where they had been for centuries and they say public buildings should be there and they make it into a school right. um, which in a way is good but it was a kind of violent kind of um because they were very uh angry at the church the sure. church had been so domineering um and for me uh writing this book was a fascinating experience but doing the background work 
for what's the history of atheism, how have these kinds of things gone on before? Uh, first, I want to answer your question. Did it matter? I think it helped the 1905 split. I do. I it was think all part of the continuum, presumably. That they, yeah. were, that they were such rabble-rousers, most people could locate themselves farther to the left because they were so far over. Right. That it gave the, a little more room in the middle to move over towards the left. Right. Um, so, but yes, doing that book made me realize that there was no good history of atheism. That the histories of atheism that I found were too polemic to be of use. So mostly, religious people don't think there are any atheists in history. They just find some belief-sounding mm -hmm. thing. Whereas the atheists err on the side of pretty much saying the good people are atheists. And when they find one who isn't, you know, Ben Franklin keeps insisting, he's not, he's not. So, I mean, someone like Hitchens wrote, he was from the childhood of our species. Which right. is, Hitchens saying that about Ben Franklin, it's, you know, maybe it's time to rethink one. But in any case, um, the... Uh, too, too polemical, and too, too, polemic. too, too black and white. And I wanted to write, I wanted to know the, the, I mean, in some way, all my books are notes to myself, and I wanted to know the story. So, getting to this idea of, of awakening your passion, and yeah. what you just said, that all your books are notes to yourself, yeah. and, and I see that um, you're clearly very excited intellectually, you're anxious to move in all sorts of different directions. Of course, the more you see and the more your exception piles all over the place start right. getting larger and larger, the it's more in interesting... I have a list of things I'd like to write about, yeah. <laughs> um, the, uh, an obvious question for me is, how does this fit in to the poetry? Uh, uh, so I can imagine all sorts of possibilities. I can imagine that it's, it's just completely distinct. Uh -huh. but, uh, I can imagine that, that uh, they each influence each other, or one influences each other in a, in right. a particular way. I, uh, so, so tell me what that's like for you. Do you do you find that there's some I don't want to say synergy. Well, I've just said it, but anyway, it's a terrible word. But but uh, but do, do you find that there's some connection between these in terms of the way you approach your work? That or, or are they are they quite disparate? Um, both. So when they when I started out, they seemed very separate to me. Um, the poetry was from a deeper place. Uh, I studied poetry. That is not officially, not uh, formally, but I, I read very widely and deeply and over and over, um, but that felt like it was about me at first. And the history seemed uh, a very different affair because I was doing uh, research history, which is very different than reading a bunch of other secondary sources and then writing your version. Really going to the archives and, and digging through and figuring out what goes in and where it goes and really making the story out of a pile of little pa pieces of paper and some, you know, 150-year-old journals. Uh, yeah, that felt very different. And I will say that to this day, if I sit down to write something in prose, I'll write something, you know, that hour, that day. Mm. Uh, whereas when I sit down to write poetry, it might not happen. Even now, you know, it's, it's a blank page. Every poem has to come from some, who knows where it comes from. Um, mm -hmm. So that's true. Uh, and then in terms of how they feed each other now, by now they feed each other. There's no question. And also, over these years, I've come to see that, that I'm interested in the metaphysical and the psycholo psychological. And that I'm interested in other things too, but metaphysical and psychological questions are what really interest me the most, and I see 
similar kinds of um, devotions in my various arts. Uh, and remember, it's like I have, it's really three hats because it's poetry and, well, someone recently said she wears a lot of hats, but her head is poetry, and I liked that. Um, so, but there's poetry and there's scholarly history, and then there's um, writing uh, more, more publicly. Um, and, and my books that I write for the, for the general public are still kind of scholarly, but, but they're meant to reach everybody. And I hear from people who don't have a lot of history and still enjoy it a lot. Um, there's also the articles, uh, which I mostly only write when people ask me to. I almost only write when people ask me to. Um, and, you know, when Robin Williams died, the Daily News wrote and asked me to write something about it. So I sat down and wrote it. Um, right. uh, so I, these articles, too. So it's, it feels like three very distinct realms. Um, but they're all, yeah, there's a passion there that's about me finding people very interesting and finding the universe very interesting. And, and well, one of the reasons uh, why I'm asking specifically, other than the fact that I just think it's curious to be sitting across from a poet who's, who's also yeah. writing scholarly works, who's also right. writing uh, works for maybe more general consumption, yeah. is um, that... First of all, I, I like intellectual history. I like the idea of taking a big, meaty idea and looking at it from yeah. all sorts of different angles and looking at it over history and seeing how it's evolved and, yeah. and seeing what, how it plays into popular culture and past culture and so forth. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm sliding, uh, hopefully, uh, uh, steadily towards stay, which is what we're supposed to be talking about, uh -huh. or at least one of the things that we're, mm -hmm. we're supposed to be talking about. Um, but uh, when, I, when I look at... at at your work on the history of doubt, or doubt as an idea, or when I, when I look at an exploration of happiness, or when I look at some of the uh, anthropological, atheistic orientations, right. and all these things are, are put together. Um, typically, uh, my expectation is somebody's going to produce a work that is relatively dispassionate, that is an investigation of all sorts of different uh, ideas and at the end of the day presumably have some sort of thesis or conclusion but you're not you're I imagine someone who, who approaches it with a more scholarly perspective of well I'm going to study doubt and see what happens and I'm going to right. investigate it I'm going to look and see how it's evolved how it's changed and so forth and I, I am most of the time um, quite suspicious of someone that says I'm going to write a history for the very reasons that you were saying mentioning Hitchens and so forth I'm going to write a history of, of atheism and I already know what I'm going to find right. I'm going to find that 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 only idiots believe in atheism, or only right. idiots believe in religion, or, or whatever it is. So my, the, 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 the hair on the back of my neck starts, starts rising when I, right. when I suspect such a thing. So I, I'm hoping and assuming that the person who's going to write a book like that is going to be sufficiently open-minded that they're motivated in the spirit of sheer exploration to start off with. So I pick up this book, Stay, don't know much about it, and, and I read the introduction. And it's very, very personal, immediately, mm -hmm. right away. Is there's, there's, this, uh, there's a book which is, uh, uh, ostensibly, I pick it up off the shelf. It's a history of suicide. I think, okay, well, that's kind of interesting. I don't know much about that. I haven't really thought much about mm -hmm. that. And here, there's a clear um, personal aspect of you talking about people you knew, who were close to you, who had committed suicide, right. and that you have an agenda in the very beginning. Which, mm -hmm. and, and you're very upfront about it. You, mm -hmm. uh, there are, some, uh, there are some canonical high school narratives, as it were, of, of 
the way, uh, the way suicide uh, has been presented over the ages. Right. Um, and uh, you are going to explore those with the intention of looking for very strong arguments uh, uh, for a secular audience that is against that. That's my, that's my interpretation right. of what you're doing. So one writes the preface after one's written the book. So in some ways, you're trying to give what you found. And so, but, but you're certainly right that I, I set off looking for support for certain conclusions that I was interested in, for certain ideas of my own that I was interested in. And, and I guess my sense is that was interesting for me because I expected naively to, be, to find that off-putting. But I didn't. I actually thought, okay, well, first of all, uh, she's upfront about this, right. <laughs> so she's saying it right. And secondly, um, this is something which is necessarily much more personal. I mean, if, right. if you have suffered uh, uh, the, 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 the impact of suicide from someone near and dear to you, you're not going to approach it like some academic treatise. You're, it, it makes complete sense to be doing that. So for me, as somebody who is not a, a scholar of poetry, as I told you before, I have this sense that this is the perhaps more subjective uh, overtly yeah, poetic right. side of you who is, who is getting in and driving it. And that, that I found actually intriguing and, and refreshing at some level. Um, well, you're right on the money. Uh, uh, the, the truth is with this particular project, I wrote a poem first. Hmm. And uh, as a poet, I allow myself a great deal of room to say whatever is coming up. Uh, and so I wrote a poem called The No Hemlock Rock, which says, don't kill yourself. And uh, so this is a Socratic reference, presumably, the hemlock or... or right, right. Uh, yeah, actually, Garrison Keillor, when he read it, he put, and put it on his website, he put in parentheses, like one of those old jukeboxes, uh, don't kill yourself. <laughs> So now, in a lot of places, I see it called the No Hemlock Rock, Don't Kill Yourself. But I don't mind it, because it is what people remember in terms of the poem. When people write to me and ask for it, they usually say, can you send me the Don't Kill Yourself poem? So I wrote this poem uh, when a friend of mine uh, did it. Uh, we weren't very close anymore. We had been close at Columbia. Um, she was a poet. She, she, was just, she was living in Boston. That was why we'd lost a little bit of touch. But we saw each other at uh, events and um, you know I still loved her and uh, so uh, so I wrote this poem after that and I showed the poem to people and I got such a strong response of people wanting to post the poem and this was a couple of years ago um, so in response to other things but people wanted the poem uh, so I got used to that and I was thinking deeply about the ideas Plus, at this time, I was doing a lot of speaking engagements about doubt, where people who either don't believe in God or don't believe in a God who is involved uh, in the way that would help us make sense of this world very much, uh, asked me a lot of questions. And, you know, a great way to become a priest is to write a book on atheism, or rather a rabbi. People ask me, they tell me secrets and ask me questions, and I felt that the education I'd given myself in writing doubt made me beholden to try to answer some of these questions. Um, and I also did have some strong opinions uh, that I could share with people. Like, in my opinion, you know, if you're an atheist but you want to celebrate a religious holiday, just try not to say too much that you don't believe and go ahead and do it. Um, I, I, I don't have anything. I, I think people need ritual 
and I think the ritual that usually works best is the one that you grew up with. But, but you also want there to be some wisdom spoken there that actually does inspire you. You don't want all the wisdom to lead back to something you don't believe in so the thing is empty except for the ritual. So that's why I was thinking so deeply about this. But also, yeah, the, the personal and the, and, and the speaking, so the public. Um, and then uh, about a year and a half afterwards, a mutual friend of ours, a friend who I think had even kept closer touch with the first one, she did it. She had written the afterward to the first one's uh, posthumous poetry book. And you could see in it how, you know, she was shocked and sad, you know, couldn't believe it. Uh, but then she did it too. So because of that timing, because of the poem, because of the thinking I'd been doing, two weeks after I heard, and the second one did it on Christmas, um, so, so it was in the middle of January, I wrote this blog post where I was blogging casually. Uh, it was called The Best American Poetry, and I was blogging there, um, thinking mostly I was talking to poets, not knowing if I was talking to 10 or 20 or 200 people ever. Um, I wrote many blog posts on poetry there, uh, and people still contact me about them. Uh, but on that place, I wrote, uh, I wrote this sort of plea, this little essay, uh, explaining that, first of all, saying don't kill yourself, but also saying that it seemed to me that the reason that secular society, progressive society, was so tolerant of suicide, that we'd made it morally neutral, was because we were responding to a, the church being draconian in its, uh, in its punishment of suicide. And when I then eventually did the research, I found that they were torturing the corpses and confiscating the estate. You didn't realize how draconian I didn't been. realize, but I did, re when I wrote that essay, just as I had just said, I, I, didn't, I hadn't yet checked all the facts. I'd just written a poem and done a lot of thinking. And then this happened, and I wrote because I was so upset. I was upset. And, I, and I, when, when you lose someone, especially to suicide, you, I've heard this from a lot of other people, you, you find yourself imagining the moment and trying to stop them. I've heard it from a lot of people, you know, somebody who's, who jumps, you imagine yourself coming away with just the sweater, you know, just the coat, this, you know, and it's hard. And so it was with this feeling of a sudden thought that, oh, I can't save the ones that are gone, but I can save the ones that haven't done it yet. So, so, I, so that's why I turned to them and said, said, let's us not do it. Let's find something positive in this and that we'll not do it. Um, and what I say is that it, it, that the pain of losing someone teaches you how much we mean to each other so that the injunction not to take your own life immediately comes with a new mattering. You realize that you matter to these other people to the point of life and death. Well, I didn't realize that yet either. Um, that I did sociological research to see that you could really show that one suicide in a school will likely lead to more. One in a family will raise the, su the suicide rate in that family for two generations. There's a lot of empirical evidence that you were citing about this notion of contagion. Yeah, so, and it had been around before, but the statistics were now, you know, giving numbers to it. So, um, yeah, I very much, when I, once something is both obs 
observational through history and then also shows up in the numbers, you can start to say, okay, you know, there's something really stable here. Um, but in that first essay, I just said it all very broadly. And I said, uh, let's try to feel the community that is, that becomes so visual when something like this happens. Yeah. Let's try to lean into it. Let's try to enjoy it. Let's try to, and also I said, thank you for staying. That was the first place that I, now I said in the poem that I would give badges to people who'd realized that suicide was like, when you poison yourself, you poison the well. Um, so yeah, so in this piece I thanked people. I said, I'm grateful, we're grateful. Um, and it kind of went a little viral. Uh, and then the Boston Globe wrote to me and asked if they could print it um, on the back of their ideas section in this big, lovely blue background. And uh, so between the blog post, I had gotten some emails about the poem, but the blog post and then the Boston publishing of that, um, and I think that's the first time I called it Stay, uh, though the, the essay, the, the blog post ends with that word. Um, I got a lot of email and actual printed mail, written mail, and I realized this is important, and a lot of people are finding this very moving. Most people weren't telling me that they thought, what they thought of it intellectually at that point. Right. They were just saying, I slipped this under my son's door, or this is helping me cope with my right. wife. And, um, you know, when I say those two, those are two that I remember as if they happened yesterday. Um, uh, and so I said to myself, well, this is now a responsibility. Uh, and I have, I want to go check all these things. What I said about religion, what I said about, I, I, exactly. I, I, I was going on, obviously, I'm, I, I was a history professor for 14 years. I have a PhD in history. So it's not just that I'm, that I'm going on things I made up. I, I knew what I was talking about, but I had never checked it specifically, gone and researched this idea. So that's when I decided that I should do that. Um, and uh, so I went in having made an argument. My argument mostly was we need each other. We need each other so much that we should take it as an indication that suicide is wrong, um, that it hurts other people, and that therefore we can stop worrying about whether we're a burden. Um, a lot of people who are ideational, and I would say, and I've asked around a lot, so this is an educated guess, that maybe 70% of people sometimes think about suicide. It's way more than half. It's not everybody. I definitely meet people who say they get very depressed sometimes, but never think of suicide. It's not everybody, but it's way more than half. Think about it sometimes or have thought about it. Uh, and I can give you stats for that, but it's easy to look up. Um, recently tested a whole bunch of uh, like 27,000 uh, college students and yeah. you know a lot of them, 55% like had thought about it, 30% uh, had thought really seriously about it. What's wonderfully is most of the ones who had thought about it seriously for, had done, it, done so for only a day or an hour or so, hmm. which also goes into my argument that suicide is very often impulsive. So if you can put a rule in your head that can keep you alive for an hour or two, that may be all we need. But what's interesting to me to explore is, is, is really the sense of the, of the combination, if not in fact juxtaposition, of, of these two different points of entry into this whole issue. Right? Right. I mean, you have a tremendous number of people for whom it's obviously a preeminent uh, emotional concern. They, they, they have been personally affected. 
they fear that they might be a feather. They fear for their children. They fear right. for their wife. They fear, fear for they, themselves. They, they fear for themselves. Uh, it's hard to imagine something which doesn't have a stronger. Uh, right. It's hard to imagine something which 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 has a stronger emotional resonance right. than than that for people. And you yourself were personally affected. Uh, you uh, you have obviously a poetic outlet. You you have an idealistic uh, sense of wanting to communicate to, to other people. You felt a sense of responsibility. Um, and that's all very strong and completely understandable right. and, and an essential aspect of being human. And on the other hand, you have uh, people like me, <laughs> who does not to sound like I have no emotions, but I'm very fortunate that I haven't been touched in my life right. uh, with, with suicide. Right. I, I don't know any, anybody who has committed suicide. It hasn't impinged upon me. Obviously, um, uh, I've been depressed. Other people have been right. depressed. I'm not saying that, that we haven't done that. But um, I look at this as a way of challenging my past beliefs and seeing mm -hmm. if my beliefs actually measure right. up. So I look at this book and I think, okay, insofar as I've thought of this before, how have I thought of this? Well, I thought suicide was something which culturally was held up as, uh, as not just an, a, an appropriate way to act, but almost a paradigmatic way to act, emblematic way to act in classical times. Then the church says, no, we shouldn't do, do suicide. And now we have an understanding of rebelling against uh, the constraints of, of, of the church, and we have this understanding of liberty, and everybody should have the right to do what it is they right. want, and that's a reasonable secular uh, idea. And I guess that's a, that's a, that, that line of thinking is probably a very standard way mm -hmm. that most people approach it. It is. Um, and as I'm reading this book, again, from a, a more emotionally detached perspective, mm -hmm. uh, I'm recognizing, well, that's actually not entirely true. If you look back at classical times, there are all sorts of people who are mm -hmm. condemning these particular acts, and there's a lot of debate. It's, it's not in any way a homogeneous right. endorsement of this sort of activity. And right. so these, these classical examples of Cato and so forth right. that, that one would have thought everybody agreed upon, turns out they actually don't right. really. Socrates uh, tells his students and his friends in the room where he's drinking Hamlet, you may, must not do this. So uh, th there, there, there are lots of these examples. As 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 I'm going, as as any substantial book on ideas, you mm. you find, as you say, these exceptions, or you make these discoveries. Right. And for me, as a reader, I think, oh, this is interesting. I haven't mm. really appreciated that before. Um, so I, I have I have two questions associated with this. Um, so the first is, uh, from from you, the more emotionally removed intellectual historian part, as you right. are looking at this. What sorts of things did you find surprising and unexpected that uh -huh. you discovered uh, intellectually as you started looking at these things? That's question one. Uh -huh. Okay, well, um, the truth is a lot of things surprised me. I did not expect Socrates to be telling people that they must not do this. Um, I, I was surprised and delighted by Wittgenstein's argument. He doesn't spend much time on it, but... Uh, you know, he says that if anything is, if, if, if anything is not allowed, suicide is not allowed. And if suicide is allowed, anything's allowed. And for me, that was just, and that's almost all he says about it. But to me, that, that's just a clear statement of this is the fundamental. Which and is it's also not, more shocking to, for Wittgenstein to say a clear statement, first of all. But anyway. So. Right. Well, <laughs> it's in his notebooks, and he says more clear statements there, right? Um, but, you know, Wittgenstein's three, three of his four brothers killed themselves. Yeah. So this, and he was depressed and suicidal during parts of his life. So when he has an argument, and he also sort of lets us know that he's also taking a little strength from Schopenhauer's argument against suicide, 
um, though Schopenhauer says some things against the church uh, rejection of suicide, um, so it can be used in different ways, but um, certainly he didn't kill himself. Um, but yeah, Wittgenstein saying that, I thought that was stunningly interesting, that, that our, our duty is to, to something about keeping meaning and life going and and not it's it's not just whether we harm someone else uh, of course my argument is that in fact suicide harms a lot of people and that the communitarian argument is sufficient to say that this is something that's morally problematic but i found more in history that backed up my second argument than i thought i was going to be which was the idea that you uh you owe your future self enough respect so you don't kill him. Um, and, uh, you know, that was uttered in very, nobody said all of that, but there were suggestions. And Camus' treatment of suicide, I had remembered taking heart from it years ago. Um, and I remembered the arguments a little bit. But when I went back and read the myth of Sisyphus and, uh, you know, the whole book and paid a lot of attention to it, uh, Camus believes some things that most philosophers don't believe. You know, it's the classic philosophical thing to say, look, death is going to be this endless expanse on this side. Pre-birth was an endless expanse on this side. It doesn't really matter how long you have. You're in, you did something. What does it matter a couple of different years? And I can quote philosopher after philosopher who's saying that to enlighten the masses who are so scared of dying. And, and yet, Camus says, no. He says more experience is everything. And that what you're experiencing in particular, not that important. But that you're alive to it, that you're awake to it. He doesn't say you're going to be happy. He doesn't say it's going to be easy. He doesn't even say it's going to be nice. He says it's going to be worth it. He says the, he says the experience and the, he doesn't use words like wisdom exactly, but the experience and the kind of knowing that you will have if you stay longer is worth the staying. And he even says, yeah, the, the only bad thing is if you die young, well, what can I do about that? Mm -hmm. So it flips the philosophical treatment of life and death on its head. And, you know, I what I remembered about it that was so heartening was the absurd. That was what was, the idea of we, sh we must imagine Sisyphus happy, that stays in one's mind. Uh, but the absurd, that was the part that felt freeing. That is, we don't have to say that this, we don't have to figure out what supernatural or creative idea we need to jam into human existence in order to make it make sense. Instead, we can step back and say, it's not that it has no meaning. It's not meaningless. Look at us. We feel meaning all the time. All of this is meaning. But that the situation is absurd. That a narrative-minded creature who dies suddenly without getting to see the end or without there being such a thing as the end, it's insane. It's absurd. The suffering that we go through, the suffering we witness, the whole thing can't be reduced to anything sensible. But it's not pure 
nasty chaos either. The absurd has a playfulness to it, and you can join it, and you can add to it, right. and you can choose a version of madness almost, but you don't have to die. You don't have to stay here and play their reindeer games. The trick is, to some extent, to presumably, how to engage with it, how, how to... How to celebrate, in fact. That's that, right, that to celebrate. Someone has to show you, show most people, most of us need to be shown certain beauties. Uh, they say no one thought mountains, was, mountains were beautiful until Rousseau, who knows if, but we do need to be shown how to see things as beautiful. And the, it's Camus who does that work for, for us. If, if there's one text that people tell me that they read that helped them when I do a stay event, it's, it's the myth of Sisyphus, it's Camus. Yeah. Um, so, people so, feel f like they have a friend in him. So, so that's, uh, again, I, I just want to, I don't want to do this indefinitely, but just uh, I, I'm still thinking about this idea, maybe I've seen too many Woody Allen movies, but I, I've seen, I'm thinking about this idea of the intellectual and the emotional, and I don't want to be too simplistic, but right. here is something which has such an incredible emotional gravitas to right. it, it's hard to imagine more. And at the same time, you're treating this, this issue... My book from is a, much more detached than you might think from the preface, let's say that. Right, from, okay. a, from a very intellectual perspective. So That's one right. of the things that uh, you might have seen, uh, but that I saw that I thought was amusing, um, I don't normally quote this sort of thing, but I, so I looked at some of the reviews mm -hmm. as well, and there were a couple of reviews that go something like this, and I'm sure you've seen something. Um, well, great book, really insightful, but there's way too much of this history stuff. So, you know, just forget about all the history stuff mm -hmm. and go to the end when she's talking about what we can do and what we should do and how oh. we should behave and so forth. But, you know, there's, there's all this stuff, the first eight chapters or, you know, whatever yeah. it is, you know, forget about that. And I can, I can see in a way where that's coming from. Uh, I can see for, again, for people who are naturally so emotionally drawn to this issue, they're mm -hmm. saying, well, I don't want to take this removed intellectual approach. I don't really give a damn what, you know, what, what Cicero I might want to said. interject I, that I haven't heard that about, any, about people personally. What I see is other pe people saying, I don't think someone in distress will be able to read this. Whereas the people in distress tell me it was very calming and settling to read it. That's what I was going to say, because, it, because I would imagine if you, if you are suicidal, one of the things that you, you want to feel um, or, or you're looking for, perhaps, is some sense of connection. Sure. You want to feel a connection, obviously, with people around you, sure. but you also can feel connected with, with the past. It's nothing quite like picking up you know, Montaigne's essays That's and right. realizing, oh my God, this guy's going through the same yeah. stuff yeah. <laughs> that I'm going yeah. through. And, and, and it's, a tr it's a tremendously gratifying feeling yes. to actually feel that, that resonance. So I would have thought that, uh, that you would have received a lot of that. So you have. You have received from oh, people yeah. who, who, uh, who, oh, yeah. who, who have embraced that side and, and thank you for, for the ability to actually bring in that. Uh, the, yeah. the, Especially the, the from people who just suite. didn't see one little part of the logic before they read the book. And they're very grateful just that I closed a gap on something that they almost believed before very often. Students often, uh, college students write to me and say they, they'd never thought about hurting their friends and now they would never do it because the thought that they could influence one of their friends towards suicide has allowed them to put it out of their mind. And then they always thank me for how, it, how much nicer it is to live once you're sure you're not going to do that. That it's such a, such a relief to not have to weigh your pain and your burdensomeness against your right. contributions. 
to just be told, you know what, once you're alive and you're with us, we, we need you to stay and you're doing us a great service. And if you think you're a burden now, first of all, we're all burdens. And second of all, your suicide would be a worse burden. So just forget it. And we're capable of that with homicide. We think about killing people, certainly when we're driving, but we don't then think, should I, should I do this? My brain's telling me I should, should I? Because from elementary school, from before that, the culture told you this is something that's got to be outside the pale. It will, it will, it's wrong. Right. And this brings up this whole issue of harm. And yeah. you delineate that, I think, quite clearly. And you've alluded to it already earlier in the conversation. Um, so correct me if I'm wrong, but my, my sense is there, there are three uh, possible types of people or three possible areas uh, of, of harm that you might do if, if you're going to commit suicide or that you will do if you're going to commit suicide. There is harm to, uh, socially to the people around you, your friends right. and so forth. There is harm, as you mentioned before, to your future self. Yes. And then there are some people that talk about uh, throughout history this notion of, of, of even uh, even greater harm, this harm to humanity as a whole. That's right. Uh, Kant the, says to kill yourself is to destroy part of, the, part of morality in the universe. To, to kill oneself is to kill humanity. And so this idea of making ethical decisions based upon harm, I know there's a whole, there are all sorts of, moral philosophers do all sorts of things. Right. There's a whole way of looking at ethics and morals in terms of this theory of, of minimizing harm or not doing, uh, not doing harm and so forth. Right. Has that affected you in, in, in some way? Are you thinking broader morally or ethically? I think you're indicating the um, sort of utilitarian idea of minimizing harm and maximizing uh, happiness and frankly I so often uh, find problems with that kind of reasoning that it's not one that I I, I certainly included in my thinking but yeah. no, it's I, certainly I, I'm, but, not, I'm not actually okay. I'm, I'm thinking just more in terms of uh, I know that there are some people uh, and I don't want to make this necessarily too abstract I mean I guess all I'm saying is uh, it's a we, fundamental we, basic idea that that doing harm to others is is one of the ways we make moral rules. Right, and right. so and so th there's this age-old question about how do you ground your morality, especially from a secular right. perspective, right? If you don't have this book where somebody tells you right. this is good and that's bad, right. and 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 people say, well, one way of doing this is 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 objectively, you know, there's cats, blah blah blah, and then there's well, another way of doing this is just looking at minimizing harm necessarily, not even right. maximizing happiness uh -huh. or utilitarianism. Sure. Like I don't want to do this because right. I can quantify at some level that this is harm, and if right. this is really harmful, I don't, I don't want to do it, and I can I can reduce almost all moral decisions to some level of harm. Mm -hmm. So I guess what I'm, uh, I'm, I'm blowing this up more than I should have. I guess the question I'm really, really looking at is, it seems to me as you're examining this and you're, you're being able to isolate and identify all sorts of different areas of potential harm that you might not have thought of before, right. um, has that affected a, a broader aspect of, of you making moral judgments? I mean, do you start looking at moral judgments outside of suicide somewhat differently now? Maybe, um, maybe. I think, that, I think that human beings have always needed each other tremendously. Um, but through most of history, the vast amount of, of, of history, we, we couldn't do anything without each other. Uh, you, needed, you couldn't live without being in a group. And even after you're settled farmers, you know, there's one good hearth in the house and everybody gathers around it. There's one cool breeze on the, uh, you know, in the front porch. Everyone goes there. And people are annoying and they talk about you and they repeat themselves and they make dumb jokes. And people always want to be alone. But we can be in a way that no other historical moment has allowed because we have our own room. It was 1950 that in America we first saw 
a culture where, that had more rooms per house than people in general, like a, as an average. So we can be alone in a good climate controlled place and we have endless solo entertainment with the television and the, and the electronics. And the question is, does anybody think that's good for us? And I certainly don't think I have to make the case that that's probably not so good for us. Even when the people with you do not seem to be giving you any solace, human beings do better when they are, are meeting with people and talking and saying hello. It changes your perspective so much and it gives your life a different kind of feel. You know, I always say to people who imagine yourself alone on the planet, would you do anything the same that you do with mm. all the, you know, we are making reality for each other. We're making meaning for each other and believing each other into being. And so I have a different idea about community having written this book. I don't notice it all the time. I, I'm a scholar and a poet. I'm alone a lot. But I have a much stronger sense that when I, when I, especially when I give of myself to the community, that I'm doing myself a lot of good and that I'm standing up for something that I believe in or want to believe in. Yeah. I also think, you know, doubt, writing doubt, uh, and then going around talking about it. And when I first started that, that was in uh, W. Bush's administration, and it felt like the religious were sort of taking over. Um, that, not taking over anymore? Uh, well, it was a little Sorry. more intense, right? <laughs> um, but during that time is when I started saying, you know, speaking very truthfully about my beliefs, because I I started to feel that that was a moral responsibility, that that when people speak up for something that they believe should be an okay thing, that they're helping other people immeasurably, and that that standing up for each other is very hard, and so it must be a quest worth. Yeah, I, I, in that sense, my moral notions have changed. I also try to remind myself of my future self. Um, in a way, Marcus Aurelius uh, gave me the idea, in a way. You know, he says in one of his sort of quips that uh, the brain that got you through everything up till now will get you through whatever you're worried about happening. It'll, your same brain will, will get you through. And I, I remember thinking, oh, that's so great. The idea of trusting, having, cultivating faith in oneself. You know, the religious know you have to cultivate faith. It's not just something that you just have. Well, what about cultivating faith in community? What about mm. cultivating faith in oneself? And frankly, I find them both extremely difficult. I don't feel taken care of, nor do I feel capable of my challenges. I feel profoundly taxed and tested. Uh, this economy is not easy for me. Um, so. Uh, for that reason and many others, all the reasons that human beings can find life difficult, uh, I, yeah, I think about these things in a different way and try very hard to engage in ways that do those two things, that support community and that remind me that my future self will know things I don't know now. And so to stop trying to imagine what am I going to do in that situation, well, let's wait and see what she thinks. Because I know I'm more capable than I was 10 years ago. Um, and I know 20 years ago I was terrified of things that have turned out to be just fine. Yeah. You mentioned um, your brain with respect to Marcus Aurelius, or at least his brain, mm. somebody's brain. Um, one of the interesting aspects of 
your book is the contrast between some previous views of suicide as mental illness, depression, right. mental illness. And the sense one has of reading your book is you're not speaking that way. You're looking at, at, at you and me and the person across the road and everybody who's suffering and has yep. the potential to, to commit this act. And we can talk maybe a little bit later about something that you alluded to before, this notion of contagion and influencing other people, mm -hmm. which, which speaks to the possibility that we're all susceptible to some extent to this. Right. And it's a sense of, of, of broad aspects of humanity. Um, that's quite different from the way some people were looking, as you point sure. to there, of, of suicide some, some time ago, 100 years ago, or maybe even 75 years ago. Or, well, even, or as you said, different than right now. I'm very much, uh, I, I don't see suicide as, uh, in general, an inevitable endpoint of a biological disease. I, I see depression in the first place differently than the strongly biological. I, again, I, I did my PhD in the history of science. When you see the pendulum swing every 40 or 50 years between the biological and the sort of cultural and circumstantial, uh, you just can't help but when you notice that your culture is way over here, <laughs> that it's going to come back. And frankly, people are so worked up about it that I don't want to be the one to fight. And I know it's going to come back by itself anyway. Someone's going to do it. Other people are already. So, but I feel strongly that, that people are depressed more often because of trauma or neglect than because of any biological necessity of them having been depressed. There certainly could be, I'm sure there is, tendencies in, in different directions. Um, and that's why I think talk therapy works, because I think you can unravel trauma and neglect. And we know that talk therapy works. We also know that it's expensive and hard to deal with in this particular culture that's so productivity oriented. Um, we don't want people sitting around and talking for, for years. But uh, so that's the first difference that I have with a lot of people. And the next is the notion that it's depressed people who kill themselves. Once someone kills themselves, it seems almost moronic to say they weren't depressed. Well, they certainly weren't happy, right? Chronologically, they had to be. So you can, you know, if you back solve, okay. That but doesn't mean clinically depressed. No, it no. doesn't. Nor does it mean anyone around the person thought they were depressed. And I think we really have to keep that in mind, that, that we have good statistics and a lot of observational material that show that a person who does not seem sick in bed, isn't avoiding food, isn't avoiding that, that a person who simply has been humiliated. People get humiliated by either getting yelled at at work, failing a test they thought they were going to pass, just not standing out the way they thought they were going to, but also just insult. And someone breaking your heart or someone embarrassing you at work or school seems to be a, enough of a trigger if someone has means and that's just happened, you, you, it's possible that that's what's going to happen. So if you don't have means, you can write it out. And that's one of the reasons I call my book a sort of conceptual barrier, because I know that bridge barriers work, yeah. which is amazing. Everyone thought, we'll put up a barrier, they'll just go to another bridge. But they don't. They go home. Yeah. Uh, England in the 90s, the UK in the 90s, stopped selling acetaminophen in bulk, in, in bottles, and started making it in bubble wrap, where you can only buy a few at a time. Also go to a bunch of pharmacies and, and, and buy 50 of them and pop them out. But people, but people don't. don't. Yeah. People don't. So, and if you don't have a gun in the house, you have a much better chance of surviving your misery. Uh, 
because all of us want it to stop sometimes. But if you can't in that moment, then you get to the place where you don't want it to. Um, we do have also a lot of statistics and observational material that people who try once do not generally end up doing it. We know the opposite because we know that when someone does it, it's a good chance they've tried before. But that, you know, there's one study where it followed up people who jumped, uh, or were trying to kill themselves by jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. And 25 years later from the earliest statistics, so they were gathering over a large, 96% were still alive or had died of natural causes. You also said in that same study or in yeah. that part of the book, you also said that there were significant numbers of people who jumped off and survived. Right. And, 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 and they had said that they had actually changed their minds when they were, right. uh, they were shortly, you know, they right. just left. Right. They're, and in that I'm quoting secondary sources too, that pe people had sort of noticed that and taken it up. Um, that, yeah, that, that especially that really memorable one that I think was in a Tad Friend article in The New Yorker of a guy saying, I jumped and I immediately realized I had no problems other than that I had just jumped which is so like, oh, you know, it just, you could see how that could be suddenly, suddenly clear to you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I want to talk about suffering mm -hmm. um, because you mentioned this a lot in, in, in your book and I think uh, an important point that, um, that you're making is that many, many people, many very wise individuals throughout human history have recognize that, well, we don't actively seek out suffering other than you know, some very odd people who are you know, right. clinically masochistic. Right. Um, there is a way of recognizing that suffering has positive benefits to it. Right. There is a way of recognizing, and, and so you know, whatever, we, can, we can have the laundry list of names. Right. We can talk about Montaigne, we can talk about Schopenhauer, right. we can talk about all these people right, who right. have said this. But um, uh, this is, I think, a fairly profound idea yeah. um, that people, thoughtful people throughout human history have recognized right. that nobody likes to suffer, but that suffering actually does have an upside to it if, again, you are prepared to engage, if you recognize it, mm -hmm. if you can accept it as some sort of a long-term challenge, it brings you larger perspective. One doesn't want to slip into cliche, yeah. but, uh, but that's an important, an essential part of the toolkit of making your way through life in, yes. a, in a fairly productive way. Yeah. Um, and Something that you don't talk about very much, but I think may be implied, and I'd like to ask you about now, is it, it seems to me that it could be that our contemporary values are such that they are somewhat at odds with that. We live in this materialistic yes. society, as you said before, and many people have pointed out that in, in the Western world, in the, in the superficial, commercial, materialistic age in which we find ourselves, people don't even want to contemplate envisioning mortality at all, let alone right. this idea of, of suffering. Is there, is there something that we can, well, I was going to say, is there something that we can do? But let me ask you a different question. It, it, do you see any, any hope, any way forwards for people to embrace their suffering, as it were? <laughs> Look, uh, it's a great question. And I'll, I'll first set, set out that, just like the suicide thing, partly we're responding to uh, to a church idea, uh, you don't really find it in Judaism, um, you certainly find it in Catholicism, very strong, uh, the idea that suffering gains you actual points. So if your son is sinning, you can put a rock in your shoe 
and gain some, through your suffering, gain some points for him. Um, you know, it's crazy, but it's also, you can see where it gives you a little power and it lets you feel your, your hope. Um, you can see it, but you can also see why the modern world would strongly reject that. And it's also true that we simply did not have painkillers until, you know, 19th century, you start to get ether. Um, but, but, you know, with different things, certainly for childbirth, the ether, if you take too much, you pass out. So you got to feel the pain again, wake back up. They would give the woman the thing so she would do it to regulate it so she didn't die because she would pass out when, if she mm. took too much. Um, our painkillers, certainly the development of opioids uh, in, the, in the beginning of the 20th century, uh, you know, they work until you take them too much, but we can kill pain. And that ability is, to me, you know, I see this as a paradox that I'm so lucky I don't have to solve, or that huma humanity is so lucky we don't have to solve. That is, I would kill pain in every instance I could for myself and everyone else, but I'm glad I don't have that power. Because I don't know what would happen to culture, and I don't know what would happen to character, but I never worry about it because we are never going to solve pain entirely, uh, in, at least not in any kind of foreseeable world. So for me, there's always going to be pain that we may put it down over here. It's going to pop back up over here. Mm. So, um, so I'm not at all pro-pain. Hate it. Hate it. So, and, and well, you're would, rational. Right? And would I mean, do a lot to get away from it. Oh, I hear from people who say I have a headache, but I don't like to take pills. That is not me. I don't want pain, and I don't want emotional pain. But well, I, I well, just let me interject for a yeah. moment. Uh, so uh, th there can be all sorts of reasons for people to do that. So I don't like to take pills because okay. I because I'm uh, stupid at some level because I'm, I'm worried about magical things or I just don't like to stick other things in my body. It doesn't necessarily okay. mean you okay. actually like. No, like I the didn't. Pain. Th I didn't think. So, uh, but, uh, but, but thank anyway. you for the clarification. <laughs> no, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Um, but uh, I I'm I'm saying that I am not really saying pain is even necessarily worth having. I don't know about that, and that's the paradox I'm glad I don't have to figure out because it's not going to happen. But in this world, pain is real. Emotional pain, real depression, but also just frustration, sorrow, exhaustion, getting old, being young. It's hard. Um, and then bodily pain. But I know that pain leads to wisdom. There's one I can point out, which seems to me uh, self-explanatory, which is humility. Uh, we, we are born with our own references, and we hear someone else say that they're suffering because under the, these laws they can't marry, or because uh, because they can't get into the country uh, in a certain, because they can't get these papers. And we say to ourselves, well, you know, you, you, know we're, you can live together. Why do you have to get... You know, we, 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 we don't empathize. We don't fully. Um, and, if, you know, I pick that one because it's... Because a lot of people 10 years ago thought that that was asking too much and now realize, my goodness, of course they should have equality. So um, the ability to empathize is most enhanced by one's own pain. The ability to be a humble leader. And I don't think you can be a good leader without a certain level of humility. 
And I think that humility comes from your own pain a lot of the time. So there's one where I'm sure that wisdom is connected up with suffering. I've, I've read many stories of you know, great leaders in history who say straight out, if it weren't for my nervous collapse, I would not have been the man that I was able to be. Right. Um, and do you see a paradox or do you see a, a, a potential conflict with the idea of, getting back to what I said before, of, of I don't want to go overboard with this, but people have commented that we're living in an increasingly hedonistic age. We're living in an, in an age where people don't want to, uh, um, I'll just probably wait just a, yeah. a, a little bit. Um, we're living in an, an increasingly materialistic age that is eschewing even discussions of things that discomfort us. Right. And so we are consciously and logically, as you point out, doing our best to minimize pain and suffering, right. but that that might actually backfire sure. uh, at, at some level, or that, or that there might be all sorts of extra negative repercussions to it. Um, I'm, not ask, I'm not asking for a prescription, because I think that's unfair to ask you to solve all that. Right. But do you, see, do you see a tension there? I certainly do. Um, and I've written, uh, in The Happiness Myth, I've written sort of about the extent to which, uh, you know, the way um, sex was pornographic in the, in the Victorian age, but death was out in the open, um, we are now in an opposite position. Um, in an American supermarket, you can buy meat without seeing a body or blood. That's really incredible. Throughout most of history, people have killed animals or seen them killed. Everybody, all the time. How else do you get meat? Even today in France, you go to a market and there's some dead animals and some live ones and some bloody ones and a butcher's covered in blood. You don't see that here so much. So we in particular um, are putting away death. Uh, we're in a parlor right now. A, a funeral parlor has that name because until they started making funeral parlors, everyone had the funeral in your parlor um, where people could come and visit. So the person died at home. Of course, where else would you die? You die at home surrounded by family, and there's even some perks to it. You get to make some last confessions. You get to make some last wishes that people are pretty beholden to follow. You get to make a religious last confession. You get a lot of attention. Everyone's gathered around. You get this moment to rethink everything and to talk it out. And we have etchings of, of them and write-ups of them, partially because, especially with Catholicism in France, um, the idea was that you would read these so that you would have a good death too, so that you'd remember to make your last uh, statements to different people, apologies, requests. And because of that, death was a part of life that was at least a tiny bit looked forward to. It was going to be very much about you. I was saying the etchings, you know, there's a famous one, it's a funeral, the guy's dying, everyone's around looking, but there's a kid and a cat playing under the table. Because this wasn't an outside-of-life thing. It was a part-of-life thing. And so we now, with the hospice and the, and the level of medication that we have, which all, these are complicated things. I'm not saying you forget about it. I, I am saying, well, in the happiness myth, I say, why shouldn't we have death coaches the same way we have birth coaches? Pick someone close to you, go take a class. Find out what's going to happen, what it's going to feel like, how you can help a person going through it, and have some perks involved. Um, I was saying that to sort of open the mind to certain ideas, but I have seen uh, in the last few years a rise of people planning their own funerals. Um, I, I see that written up. Um, the people are, do seem to be trying to take back a little bit of the experience. 
um, and also to limit, if not the palliative care, because we do know from these centuries of death that death could be excruciating, sure. and you don't need to go through that. But to not eliminate the palli palliative care, but to make some strong decisions about how much intervention you want, because you don't want to live past. Though, of course, there's lot, a lot of, uh, geez, I know so many people who agree with the statement, my grandmother says, I wish death would come. You know, they, when you're very old and very uncomfortable, um, it, it, it's something that our society is beginning to talk about. How long do we want to live? How do we want those last years to look? Mm. Um, so I do think that there is a bit of a prescription. The first part is just notice it. Just notice it makes you be able to integrate death more into the world of life, which is good for so many different things. Um, it helps you enjoy life. Um, I've been talking the happiness myth about post-traumatic bliss that people who come very close to dying, uh, we all know this from television and movies, uh, sometimes go through something that 10 years later, they're still loving every day in a way that, look, we're all dying eventually. Shouldn't we all have this? But it doesn't work that way. It's something much like PTSD, that if you go through it, you can't shake it. It becomes part of your body. The way grief and erotic love is part of your body, you can't just shut it off. Um, and I do think that, that the more we allow a little bit of that knowledge of death into our consciousness, even when we're picking up the cellophane meat, noticing what, what's happening here, yeah. even that it helps us to, um, to get a little bit of that larger perspective that, that can help live life. I mean, look, I, I, I've said this before that when you hear somebody saying that everything is beautiful and life's worth living, they're the guy who's in trouble. The people who are okay aren't talking about this all the time. Just like your favorite weight loss expert used to be heavy. You don't just make this stuff up otherwise. So I'm not pretending that all my ideas work enough to make life easy or happy. I'm just saying, here's what I found that helps. Here's what I found that helps me or that helps other people and I'm saying very clearly, it doesn't help quite enough, but it's something. Yeah. Just to push the prescription, yeah. prescriptive thing a little bit further, um, you've thought a lot about this. You've spoken to a lot of people. Yeah. Um, you've done a lot of research. And so if I'm sitting, listening to this somewhere, I say, okay, so what? So what do we do now? Right. What do we do as a society? Are mm -hmm. there any prescriptive changes, you mentioned a few things right. uh, in passing the bridge barriers and so forth. Right. There are some things that we can do. Um, so I have a two-part question. The first is, can we point, can we point to, uh, to some places on the planet where they do a better job at preventing suicide, where they do a better job at, at building communities, at building a sense of tolerance. At, uh, are there places right. where we can point to where, where, where best practices are being pursued, or right. better practices at least? Mm -hmm. um, and, and secondly, what, what are some of those practices, and what, what should we actually be doing? What could we do as a society? Well, uh, I think that there are good practices, but they're scattered around, um, so that uh, some of the cultures that are very good with mental illness because they, so some Scandinavian uh, uh, treatments have been very 
um, successful in that are that are more social than medical. Um, you know, if you feel needed and recognized and missed when you're not there, it helps a lot. Uh, we're very isolated here, and we're also very we're almost all redundant. I mean, in any farming village, if you play the guitar, you're an important guy, uh, but here not so much. Um, so, but meanwhile, the Scandinavians. Maybe they're so good at it because they're living in such a dark, dark place most of the year and it's cold and they have a terrible suicide rate. But they do have some of these other examples of community that helps people recover from debilitating depression. Um, I think the old Catholic model of telling people that it's, I mean, it's not just Catholic because Luther and Calvin picked this part up very, very much that suicide was always the devil trying to get you. But we have records of how people used that in a very positive way. I mean, maybe that sounds awful, but, but we have a record. You know, I'm thinking of one in particular, a woman who said, I fought all night holding the knife. The devil wanted me to use it, and God was helping me put it down, and eventually me and God won. Um, that's an imagery that I bet would help a lot of people if they believed it. So if we had, and, and that's, I hope I'm offering something that, that you can struggle with, that you can be on your side in, in that struggle. But we do sometimes need visuals. We do sometimes need, oh, this is a str struggle between this one tiny part of me that sometimes wants to do this and all the rest of me that usually doesn't want to do it. You know, how can I wage this war? But the biggest answer to the second question, I believe, and I know that there are limitations to this because we don't want people to be just, you know, a totally therapeutic world where we're all spilling our problems, but I do think that especially in America where we're so concentrated on positivity and smiling and covering up the hard spots, uh, speaking, speaking the truth about how it is for you is, I think, the hugest contribution that each of us can make. And we can make it in tiny ways. We can make it when we're feeling too small and weak to do anything. You just don't pretend it's all okay for you if you can. If you see someone else in distress, they meet too sometimes. F find ways to. Um, and, and that too, when I wrote this book, I, I had one line in the preface that says I was struggling with my own darkness at that time too, um, in the period that I lost my friends. I was uh, depressed and ideational. Um, I'm one of the 70% and probably if I would break that down into people who think about it more, it comes to my mind. Mm. It doesn't bother me much anymore. It, it's almost like a homicidal thought. I think, nah, forget that. Um, but before, I thought it was information that I had to take seriously. Um, this also speaks to this idea of contagion that we mentioned before. I mean, right. you had two friends who, who, who did this, and you pointed out uh, in terms of treatments, um, so I, I'm not going to get all the numbers all right, but right. My, my sense is uh, there were studies that were done when, when there were groups of adolescents who, who had committed suicide in schools uh -huh. and, and, and you compared and contrasted, this was retroactively, they didn't right. do a control group or anything right. like that, but uh, some, uh, some schools had therapists that went in and talked to these yeah. people and actually yeah. engaged with the, the, the survivors, yeah. the students, and that really helped a lot in terms of the actual numbers of, of uh, imitation suicides that yeah. came out later. Uh, it's true, but it's one of the... the no, it is the only thing I softened in the paperback version. They let you change something. That was the only, the only conclusion that I, that I wanted to soften a little bit because I didn't see as many 
empirical studies that backed it up, okay. that good talk can help. Can help. So I think that, that the jury's out on that. The, the study that I quoted is true and real, and people respect it. But in comparison to the, the, the number of studies, the overwhelming influence that, that um, you can be influenced in a bad way by a suicide, there's much less evidence, right. or, or rather, and some of it shows otherwise. Um, but, you know, Kurt Cobain's another one where they, you know, a lot of, they, when, when he died, Seattle really upped its game in terms of there being suicide hotlines and counselors, and, and the suicide rate didn't rise, but the calls to the suicide hotline rose a lot. So then again, we see that, and it certainly is suggestive that, um, that people can help each other. Right, and being, just being aware of this contagion, the statistically significant, well-established result that, um, that several suicides statistically lead to more suicides or, or, or people have a higher likelihood of committing suicide if their friends or their community right. members have done. That, that awareness, of course, uh, without knowing exactly which treatment is the best treatment in and of itself, I think is very, very valuable it to take really that seriously. Is. It really is, especially because as witnessed by all the calls to the suicide hotlines, most suicidal people do not want to die of suicide. They're trying desperately to not die of suicide. They're just tortured by thoughts about suicide and worries about suicide, but they're trying to not die of suicide. And One final yeah. question, because you've been very generous with your time. Thank you. Um, has the response to this book, you told me a little bit about some of the responses. Has it been, has it been overwhelming to you positively? Have you, uh, was it what you expected? Was it, was it unexpected? Was it more personal? Was it less personal? Um, tell me a little bit about, about the response that you've received uh, after having written this book. Well, one thing I'll tell you is having written uh, Doubt, which is a history of irreligion, um, and I thought I would get a lot of uh, anger for it, I got almost none. In fact, religious people like the book because it takes very seriously the religious questions, even though it leans towards the secular answer to these questions. Um, it's not at all a dismissal of, of religious ideas. Um, but with Stay, oh my goodness, people felt, uh, people get very angry. Uh, again, for the reason you said that I'm removing something that they see as a pillar of autonomy. Uh, this is, my life is mine. And I, I get that, but I also think it's very philosophically and emotionally interesting to think about the ways in which that's not the case, in which you share your life with the people you share it with. And I do think a, a famous person has a little bit more responsibility because they've put themselves in a place, especially when they fought to get that fame. Um, and that includes me. You know, I've comforted a lot of people. Were I to do, were I to do something like that, what would that do to those who I've comforted? It, it's, it's maddening. Um, and I think that's why Robin Williams hit a lot of people. He took on so many roles that were the counselor role. Um, and then for him to not be able to make it was very distressing. Um, so I got more anger from this book than anything else I'd ever done. At first it was very distressing, but it, it isn't as distressing anymore. Don't get me wrong, when it happens, I'm distressed for a few days. It, it shakes me up and it's hard. Because I'm often trying to console someone who's yelling at me. Mm. I'm still on their side. They're the person I'm trying to save, but they're mad at me at the moment. Turns out 
it's possible, especially in emails. They write me, somebody writes an angry email, and I write back telling them how I feel at that moment. I, I'm, you know, I, I say, I don't, I, I see how upset you are and how much pain you're in, but I don't want you to, I don't want you to do it. I care. You know, and they'll write back and say, oh, that kind of helps. You know, it's, so it bothers me less because I see that sometimes reaching, reaching out makes that response go away. I think the secular community was angry because it's part of the secular dogma that you can kill yourself. And uh, the idea that somebody who has proven themselves to be very dedicated to uh, secular philosophy, that they wouldn't want someone to be thinking actively about secular morality as a demonstration to the world that we can still think actively and, ch and progressively about morality. Um, so that's one area, one, one arena where, where it's been very hard. Um, I, I certainly have been told by many people that I don't know what depression is or I don't know what these feelings are, and that's one of the reasons that while the book was scholarly because I had scholarly questions, my talking about it since has been more personal because I find that if people think I'm some scholar from the outside who doesn't have a profound investment in this, um, it's too easy for them to write me off and to not reconsider their place in the universe, and I want them to. So I'm willing to, it's being vulnerable, but it's also, you know, you're a public figure, but you also have in-laws and you have all of these other people who are going to read what you say. And I've said in, you know, in public, in the Daily News, that I have suicidal thoughts. Um, that's something I did not want to come out with, but I chose to because I wanted to get past people's defenses and have them be willing to, to consider these ideas. And establish some sort of empathy, of course, from, from right. the beginning. Um, so this, this is... I guess I'm one of these people who just is completely out of it. This is actually shocking to me, to be completely candid that people with you. Are I'm, so here's what I expected you to say, ah. okay? So I expected you to say um, you, you have received lots of calls and emails oh, from people who say, you know, I was, I was even tempted, I was in the dark side, and then I, 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 yeah, I read I your did. book and I, and I was inspired, and, and so I, I, and I recognized... And it inspires me to an unbelievable extent. I, I have the, the, some of these letters, especially the handwritten or the typed ones that they felt so strongly they wanted to put it in, you know. But some of the emails, my goodness, I got one, uh, what, two days ago from a mother who, in any case, uh, boy, I was so moved. I floated around the city through a difficult day just thinking about that, that I had, that I had helped give this woman the tools to see this in a way that gave her strength and and was going to mean life to her. Um, no, that part is fantastic. That part is deep and weird and moving. Let me also say, say a thing about the secular thing, because this is also, yeah. this was in your book and it also confused me a bit. So it seems to me it's, it's very logically possible. In fact, I, I believe this myself. It's very logically possible to say you have a right to do this and it's still morally wrong do this. I mean, there, there, there is a distinction to say, okay, yeah, you have a right, you have a, you, right, you, you, right. You, you, you can believe that within the, the framework of our society, you shouldn't be bound and you should I have agree, freedom. though I choose not to use the word right, because I think that we don't go around saying, you have a right to have a muffin. 
what things do we choose to make a big deal about you have a right to? So you have a right to free speech and you mm. have a right to free assembly. Those are so different than a right to kill yourself. It, I don't want to use the word right. I think that got caught up in this fight with religion. Um, but obviously everyone has the ability to kill themselves. And I can't take that away and I'm not trying to. I wouldn't freeze sure. people's arms away from their necks if I could. And I also think that at certain levels of physical or even mental distress, the, every case has to be adjudicated on its own. And I have a little watchword that I didn't put in the book that I've sort of developed since, which is, well, in the book I talk about despair suicide, and I say I'm not talking about end-of-life care at all. Sure. But what I, what I add now is that even though there's a whole bunch of cases in the middle that are tricky, there are people who your family and your friends and your doctor think you've been through enough and nothing's going to get better and this is a reasonable thing to talk about. And then there are all these cases where nobody who knows you wants you to do this. So that's a loose description for saying, over here, I don't know, nobody knows. We have to figure it out each case. But there's a big chunk over here where if everybody you know and everybody who loves you says, would have said, no, wait, let's work this out, that's a good indication that maybe you should should not not be thinking of yourself in that camp. Anything I missed? Anything you want to add um, to the discussion? I guess I guess just that I think that at the turn of the last century, the nineteenth to the twentieth, all the way to the middle of the twentieth century, there were people who weren't religious or who were outright atheists or agnostics who said that without God or religion, meaning must be a phantom. There's no such thing as meaning. There's an abyss where there was meaning. And I think that that was a mistake. And I'm emboldened to say so because Sartre is one of the only ones who really says it and insists on it. Most philosophers and thinkers and authors and artists through history have been very conversant with meaning. And the formula I use is that the feeling of meaning is sufficient to the definition of meaning. Just as the feeling of love is sufficient to the definition of love. So even when you don't feel love, you're not in love, you're angry at the people you love, but you don't say love doesn't exist. You see it in other people, you remember that you had it. And I think it's right to say that the feeling of meaning is sufficient to the definition of meaning. We don't need some outside source zapping it to give it that extra meaning. That what we have to do is to recognize that it's real because it's human. It's a real part of being human. And by meaning, I mean mattering. It matters to us how our mother is doing right now, how, whether people like what, the art that we've just created, whether we live or die, whether the baby is crying. These things matter. And there's no cosmological universe that can out-amaze me from the human culture and human mind. We're we're as expansive and as amazing as there being billions of galaxies. And um, I think remembering and thinking about the idea that meaning is real, that it's in culture, that it's in community, it's in history, it's in art, but culture and community pretty much says it, that you don't have to invent meaning. You don't have to rise up and decide meaning and then nurture it that your culture is and your community is going to do some of that work for you. And sometimes you have to let it. Sometimes you have to let the reins go and 
follow along with what the other people are doing and see if there's some joy in it. Because sometimes they know stuff you don't know. Just having a little bit of faith, which is what you're A little bit of faith in life, yeah, which I really believe that part is something that you do choose and we can help each other choose it and cultivate it. I'm not saying that it's easy for me or that I'm convinced even that the world is basically good. I'm not. But I do believe that meaning is real, that human mattering matters. And that means a lot to me. Thanks a lot, Jennifer. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About History, Volume 3, along with separate discussions with David Armitage, Carl Gerth, Margaret McMillan, and Matthew Stewart. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com, while those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.